0: Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 26 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast, my name is Natasha Bajima, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, just a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the US government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at www.authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I hope you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon. That's www.patreon.com. So my headlines uh, for today come from two tweets. Uh, that's Twitter, in case you don't, you're not on Twitter. Um, I've included the links in my show notes, in case you're interested. The first is a video from The Economist about an electronic badge that monitors the behaviors of employees, conversations, time spent talking, not talking, time spent at the restroom, moving about, walking around, sitting. It tracks locations within the office and proximity to other employees. And this level of tracking is facilitated by an array of different sensors. The badges collect all of this data, and then the data is integrated with data from calendars and employee emails. So the company that makes this device is called Humanize, which I find a little bit ironic. Um, It sells the badges to companies around the world as a new way to improve the productivity of employees. It's interesting. First of all, that the company is called Humanize, um, but also I had a conversation with my friend this weekend, we were talking about how we're both independent contractors now, but how there's this emphasis on counting hours, so timesheets, how many hours did you work? And we were talking about how that hours worked do not necessarily reflect productivity, that productivity has to do with the product, and both of us produce... Um, written products that are very challenging to produce, and I guarantee you that there's a lot of time I spend just thinking, where I'm actually not talking, not typing, and imagine I were working for a company that then devalued that time in which I was thinking about complex topics in order to articulate them onto paper. So it's, you know, the, the, the video talks about some of the concerns about this, so workers' rights, privacy, but for me, I really see it as dehumanizing, so it's a dehumanization of work. And it's not that more productivity can't be achieved, but does a conversation at the water cooler with other employees, does that actually decrease productivity? It may decrease the time spent at the computer doing certain things, but, it, but when we're talking about humans, it doesn't necessarily decrease productivity if the humans then become discontent so, some companies are. Um, so, what happens? Humanize claims that it anon- anonymizes the data collection and then provides aggregated data to the companies. It also doesn't record the actual content of the conversations. However, we all know that when the data is collected, it can be misused. And some companies are taking things a step further and microchipping their employees. I mean, this is just absolutely troubling. This is dystopian. Um, would you work? for a company that tracked its employees in that this way. But then the other question is, what if we don't have a choice? What if so many companies in the future start using these technologies that this is just the way of the future? Um, it's not a future that I would like to be in. So my second tweet um, is also a little <laughs> dystopian. It's from ABC News. It involves uh, the latest video from Boston Dynamics. Um, you've probably seen the videos illustrating the capabilities of their robotics. Um, There's a um, particular one, a a dog robot that can walk backwards and up and down stairs almost effortlessly. Um, These videos are both fascinating but also terrifying. Well this video um, that I'm including the tweet to shows a humanoid robot carrying out a very impressive gymnastics routine. And it's fascinating to watch, but again, just terrifying. Alright, let's get to my interview where I talk to two brilliant ladies about nuclear terrorism and the tool they've developed to better understand the threat. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today I'm here with Vivian Haggerty and Madeline DeMent. Vivian is a consultant at Balance Global and a master's candidate at Georgetown University's Security Studies program, Madeline is a research fellow at Valens Global and a student at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. Ladies, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much.
0: So um, I'd like to start off with you telling me a little bit about Valens Global. What, What is Valens Global? What do you guys do? Yeah, Valens Global is a small
2: international security consulting firm based in D.C., and we specialize in the study of uh, actor-centric analysis of violent non-state actors, so whether that's terrorist organizations, organized crime, cartels, um, anything that is uh, not affiliated with a state and um, commits some kind of violence or criminal activity. Um, And really we pride ourselves on having these actor-centric Assessments that have proven to be correct, even when the field you know whether that's the counterterrorism field or uh, the broader international security field, when their conventional wisdom has been incorrect, um, our analyses have proven to be to be more accurate. And it's still a young organization only about five years old um, and we, uh, we like to think of ourselves as a, a bright young team. <laughs>
0: So why, do, why is the conventional wisdom about terrorism incorrect? Why, why do you guys get something right and um, the rest of us out there just kind of making up theories get it wrong?
2: We try to focus as much as we can on getting those primary sources. So whether that's gathering our own information from um, communications platforms like Twitter or Gab or Facebook, um, rather than relying on secondary sources where there's sort of circular citations, where people are perhaps unintentionally peddling things that are slightly incorrect. And then it becomes a game of telephone where, where things keep getting less and less, um, accurate and farther away from the truth as, as citations happen. And as those secondary sources get further away.
0: So one of the challenges in studying terrorism, and it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, is the absence of reliable data, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, and that
2: is especially difficult. And I think that's any researcher or analyst's challenge is trying to find as much data as possible. And that becomes pretty difficult when people are actively trying to hide information from you. So that is definitely a key factor.
0: Yeah, there's that. If, if, the, if, the, if, the, <laughs> if the actors you're studying are trying to hide from you, that does make it mm-hmm. difficult. But one of yeah. the areas where it's extremely difficult to analyze is um, WMD terrorism or terrorism mm-hmm. with weapons of mass destruction, of course. And this is a very good thing. We don't have a lot of cases mm-hmm. <laughs> of actual mm-hmm. successful development and use of nuclear chemical biological weapons. Um, so Valens global decided to explore the issue of nuclear terrorism. What led to that decision?
2: Yeah. So to, to your point that thankfully there's not a lot of data on this. Um, a lot of scholars refer to just the study of nuclear weapons and in, dr- in general as a low end problem. And so we've been referring to nuclear terrorism as just a no end problem <laughs> and really <laughs> not having a lot to go off of, but what led us to to want to study this and carry out this project was that we noticed a lot of the, a lot of the work done in the nuclear terrorism space was uh, supply side oriented. So um, discussing securing the materials, because if violent non-state actors and terrorist organizations in particular can't get their hands on nuclear materials, then there will not be a nuclear terrorist attack. And a philosophy that we operate by is this actor-centric analysis, which led us to focus on the demand side of these issues. So do terrorists even want nuclear weapons? If they manage to get their hands on them, would they actually detonate them in a city or would they use them for leverage? Um, and so these questions and our our history of actor-centric analysis led us to want to consider a little bit more of the decision-making process of nuclear terrorism rather than just focusing on material security or international agreements with nuclear weapon states that perhaps have less than ideal Material security.
1: Yeah, and as we reviewed the literature in the field, a lot of the existing studies that look to assess the likelihood of nuclear terrorism in the future Kind of operate under the understanding that if a terrorist group can get nuclear weapons, it will want them and will use them So that's really the gap that we were trying to fill in this project and saying would a terrorist group even want these weapons, given how difficult they will be to acquire, how difficult they might be to use, and given the really devastating conse- consequences that the group would likely face if they used the weapons?
0: Yes, you're, I mean, what you're hitting here is that the conventional wisdom in the literature is that all terrorists want nukes. It is the holy grail of terrorism. And um, if you read the literature, that, that's the conclusion you'd walk away with. But as you suggest by looking at what terrorist groups actually pursue when they pursue different alternatives, we can better understand the real likelihood as opposed to the worst care scenario that comes out of like the supply side focus. Um, so let's turn to this brilliant model that you guys developed um, called the Calculator to Assess the Threat of Nuclear Terrorism Incident Potential or the acronym CATNIP. <laughs> we're very proud of that really our, our biggest achievement ever. that's the best acronym ever <laughs> We
2: figured if we were going to put another acronym into the into the d c world, it better be memorable
0: okay. so. so um my my audience are generally writers there's probably some policy wonks on here, but tell us what is this calculator, what is it, and how does it work?
2: Yeah, so catnip is. Designed to calculate the likelihood or an approximation of likelihood that a terrorist group will carry out uh, a nuclear terrorist attack and the user Currently the framework is based in Microsoft Excel But it is actually being adapted as we speak into an online dashboard to make it a little more accessible um, which we're very excited about but once the user fills out that framework, and we have ample instructions um, for for how to do that and what things to consider, the user will be presented with four um, four measures of likelihood. So, one that a terrorist group will decide to pursue a nuclear capability, one that will choose to either buy, build, or steal that capability, um, one that it will be successful in either of those three pathways of acquisition and something that we came a- upon a little later in our project, a measure of perseverance that even if the group is by all other measures going to be successful, they still may be deterred and they may not pursue the project.
1: Yeah, so given that this is such a complex issue, again, as we were looking at the literature, a lot of the studies out there that assess the likelihood of this this issue end up kind of with one single numerical value at the end saying, okay, this group is 73% likely to pursue or use a nuclear weapon in the next 10 years or something like that. And because it's such a complex issue, we wanted to introduce a little bit more nuance. So ending up with those four values that Vivian just mentioned allows the framework, the framework user, the analyst to end up with a much more complete picture of whether or not this group will do it. So will they want the nuclear weapon? How will they try and get it? Will they be successful in getting it and using it? And will they follow through to the end of this process given how immensely difficult it would likely be? So it really presents a much more complete picture that kind of takes you through the whole path of nuclear acquisition and gives people a much better understanding than a single final value
0: would. So, um, Basically, uh, tell us a little bit about how the model is constructed. So you have this long list of variables that are in different categories. And what does the analyst do to get the final assessment?
1: So The framework is divided into three main stages. The first is the conventional versus nuclear decision in which you're assessing whether or not the group will want to use more conventional methods of terrorism or whatever, or if they will pursue nuclear weapons. Then you move to the buy, build, steal decision phase, uh, and then you move to the likelihood of success phase. So within each of those phases, we have compiled a large number of characteristics, and those characteristics assess basically the, the main things that would be necessary for a group to make these decisions and accomplish these things that they're trying to accomplish. So they include things like leadership, knowledge acquisition, history of innovation, risk tolerance, deterability, um, the, op- the environmental permissibility of the places in which they'll be trying to get nuclear weapons and the places in which they'll be trying to use them. Um, so the user goes through and in each of those phases, Assesses those characteristics and the different forms that they might take in each phase and each characteristic tends to have sub characteristics. So under leadership, a leader that people will assess um, maybe the leader's technical background, their charismatic qualities, their propensity to encourage innovation, things like that. So the framework user will go through and do research to determine how much of a propensity a leader might have to encourage innovation, how charismatic they are, and they score those sub-characteristics. Once those sub-characteristics have been scored, the scores are totaled and used to create an overall score for the entire characteristic, which in this case would be leadership, which then corresponds to kind of a final code that represents how likely that leader in this case would be to encourage the use of nuclear weapons to pursue the use of nuclear weapons so the framework user does that for many characteristics mm-hmm. in these three distinct phases that we've come up with and eventually we'll get the, the measures of likelihood at the end
0: So when I heard about your framework, of course, I was extremely excited about it as a scholar and academic. I have looked at WMD terrorism for many years, and I agree wholeheartedly that there's a major gap in the analysis. And I think you guys are making a huge contribution to filling that gap. But I also was interested in it from the side of being an author and being a writer and imagining um, writers potentially being able to use this framework to make their terrorist profiles a little bit more accurate. Um, because again, the conventional wisdom is that all terrorist groups want a nuclear weapon. And um, if you really want a more compelling story, then your terrorist groups should, you know, really have compelling reasons for having a nuclear weapon. And so I thought what we could do is kind of go through um, your framework a little bit and kind of think about it from the perspective of writers and what they have to do to kind of make their stories a little bit more compelling. So I thought we might start it out with um, leadership of a terrorist group and what types of qualities you guys think um, a leader of a terrorist group would need to have in order to successfully develop, steel by nuclear weapons.
2: Mm-hmm. So as Madeline mentioned, some of the characteristics in, or some of the sub-characteristics, excuse me, in leadership are you know, how technically minded that leader is or that group of leaders, how charismatic they are, their propensity to encourage innovation, how comfortable they are with criticism, feedback and failure, uh, their propensity to delegate operational control, their propensity to allow the adequate time to research and plan all of this, and their visions of grandeur and destruction. And so what we wanted to get at here was there's sort of a dichotomy with a lot of the Characteristics that would make a group prone to, to this kind of operation. So a leader who wants to watch the world burn, in other <laughs> words, is probably not the same kind of leader that would allow very considered and careful uh, operational planning involving very delicate materials, involving very specialized um, and educated individuals. And so there's sort of that tension with a lot of these variables. But um, what we found was that um, a lot of the things that were important in the literature were the charisma of the leader um, and what we inferred was that this leader would need to be prepared to fail a lot of times and would need to be able to work with um, someone who's presumably their subordinate, who may know more than they do about acquiring nuclear materials or manufacturing, machining them, etc., and would need to be able to deal with that power dynamic, which a leader who sees himself as a messiah and who wants to destroy the entire world might not be able to have that relationship with, with a subordinate.
0: You know, you raise a really interesting point. Typically, when um, we think, generally speaking, not as academics or scholars, but think about terrorist groups, we tend to think about them almost as godlike in, in some ways, and um, developing or gaining access to nuclear weapons is an extremely complex operation. Um, that actually requires good leadership. And I think you made that distinction really well. The the kind of person that is going to want to blow up an entire city um, may not be the same kind of person who can actually do it. Is mm-hmm. that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. And that, that,
2: um, I guess I'll come back to the word tension between those, those characteristics shows up in a lot of places. Um, and sort of feeds into the complexity and nuance of this project in general.
1: Basically what we came down to was that you not only need those visions of grandeur and destruction, you, you not only need the ideology and the acceptance of the fact that you're going to kill a lot of people, you need the the operational um, skills, you need to be able to research and devote the amount of time that's necessary to successfully completing an operation as complex as this. And if you don't have all of those things and you don't have the resources, then no matter how strong your ideology is, no matter how strong your destructive visions and tendencies are, ultimately it's going to be very, very difficult for you to be successful.
0: Yeah, I um, I think, um you know, we, if you look at Al-Qaeda, for example, Al-Qaeda managed to carry off an extremely complex operation on 9-11, leading to about 3,000 deaths in New York City and Washington, D.C. And I I believe that Osama bin Laden and his uh, fellow leaders had what both the ideology, but also the shrewdness, the ability um, to innovate, to carry out that operation. But How common is that across the landscape of terrorist groups to have that kind of deadly combination of being rational enough to carry out a very complex operation, but also kind of be crazy enough to want to destroy enough people? It's a great question. And again, going
2: back to our discussion at the beginning, that information is very hard to get. And some, I would imagine... Maybe those in government who have access to different forms of information than us peasants down here <laughs> um, might be able to provide a better assessment. But I think you raise a really good point that even with Al Qaeda, this, and, and this sort of goes to something we struggled with the, the terms conventional versus unconventional, because there was nothing conventional about 9 right. 11. However, it was not a CBRN attack. Um, and they were able to be extremely innovative while using something that didn't, they did not have to build, they didn't have to, um, steal an airplane from someone, they were simply able to board it. And something that we dealt with a lot was thinking about, you know, how, really how these organizations think and if... Something like 9-11, that is the, you know, some could argue the most innovative terrorist attack we've seen using quote unquote conventional materials. And looking at Al-Qaeda's past um, attempts at going into the CBRN space and actually talking to to Pakistani nuclear scientists in the 90s, you know, to, to borrow your word, shrewdness. Bin Laden decided not to pursue the nuclear path, at least in that um, in that instance. And so, while I I wish I could answer the question better of of how many leaders out there have that sort of deadly combination, but I think it is when we think about whether groups actually want these weapons, I think it is important to think, okay, well, the organization that carried out the most innovative and deadly attack actually steered clear of
1: these weapons. And one of the ways that we tried to handle that problem of assessing whether or not leaders and groups have both the ideology and the actual tactical skills necessary to complete a nuclear operation was through a characteristic that we've termed history of innovation. So given that a lot of people using this framework, um, if they're not working off of classified government information, usually you might not know some of the the nitty-gritty of what a group is really capable of. But if a group has successfully innovated in the past, that's usually possible for the the average person to see. So we've put that as a characteristic that has some significant weight within this framework, and we've broken it down into a history of advanced conventional innovation that excludes CBRN innovation, so that doesn't include chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear uh, efforts or anything like that. Uh, And then we also have a sub-characteristic that assesses CBR and CBR innovation. So by looking at both of those things, we're able to see, okay, if the group has been able to successfully innovate in the past and has been able to successfully go through these processes of trial and error, then they might have both the skills necessary and the ideology necessary to pursue nuclear weapons.
0: I think, you know, you're touching on a key factor here of innovation and um, how that plays out in organizational dynamics. So um, in the absence of data, and I know there's a data issue here, um, I like to think every organization that consists of humans is fairly similar. And so I think about a successful business, right? The same characteristics that you would need to run a successful business, you would need to run a complex operation. Um, uh, such as getting access to nuclear weapons and what happens often when you get a group of individuals together especially if you have a leader who's not open-minded or innovative um, that innovation gets gets stuff snuffed out that um, groups of people even single people and individuals tend to be risk adverse and they like to do things that they know how to do and because there's risk like you kind of have said trial and error failure All of these things that we don't like as humans in the the kind of business world. I mean, failure is costly. You know, you do a startup company and you fail the first time, you know, you could go bankrupt. Those are the risks that you have to run as well as a terrorist group. And one of the main themes of the literature about innovation and terrorism is that um, bombs, bombs and guns kind of get the job done. Um, and from, from the perspective of a terrorist group, and terrorists know how to use them and they have access to the skill set. But if you take a specialized skill set like nuclear weapons or chemical or biological or, or radiological, it's, it's a whole new ballgame. You actually need specialized technical expertise, um, and that raises the risk of failure and that raises the risk of detection and getting caught. So, on the business side, when you're doing a startup, you don't have to worry about getting caught, right? That's not part of your equation. Um, but on the on the terrorist side, that's a major part of the equation. So you talked a little bit about environmental permissibility. And I want to kind of touch on that because um, it was a major finding of the 9-11 Commission report that in order for a terrorist group to implement a complex operation, that they needed some sort of safe haven or some sort of physical territory in which they could plan their operation. What do you guys think about that?
2: I think you you hit on an incredibly important point. I mean, when you're debuting a new technology, when you're launching a new startup, you can fail, and it doesn't result in you going to jail. (laughs) And I think that's something that strangely is overlooked in a lot of the literature is the, I think about this a lot in terms of game theory and sort of running multiple iterations of games, you know, these groups may only have one game. The probability that they might be successful could be rendered completely moot if they never get a second or third or fourth chance to do this. Um, And I think Madeline touched on um, a lot of the organizational literature in the report we put together. And that is something we, you know, in, in the absence of data, drew from drew from quite a lot in terms of risk tolerance and whether your organization is, is willing to engage in these efforts.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in terms of just the permissibility of these environments that might allow groups to plan complex operations such as this, that's something that we really wanted to focus on in this project. And we've broken it down uh, into four distinct environments. Uh, One is the source environment in which the terrorist group would get nuclear weapons or materials required to build a nuclear weapon. Uh, Another one is the operating environment which is where the group would likely be planning most of the operation. So this is where they might be building the weapon or storing the weapon or again just kind of going through and planning how they're going to carry this attack out. Um, Another one is kind of the transport environmental uh, uh, permissibility as a whole. So Obviously, if you have to move materials or weapons from a source environment to an operating environment to a target environment, those weapons and materials are going to be in transport at some point. So how permissible are those routes? How permissible are those transport routes? And will you be able to move these materials and weapons through without detection? And finally, obviously, the target environment itself needs to be permissible in order for the group to successfully detonate a nuclear weapon. Uh, So those are all things that we considered through the lenses of local law enforcement capabilities, the general rule of law. If people see something suspicious, are they going to say something? Um, National intelligence capability, the specialized response capabilities. So in the target environment or the operating environment or wherever it may be, if someone gets wind of the fact that a terrorist group is trying to conduct a nuclear attack, are there special groups and forces that can respond in a timely and effective fashion? So those are all things that we considered when trying to help analysts assess the overall environmental permissibility of these different places in which a group might be working.
0: Again, this is a key difference between being a a good guy and launching a business and being a bad guy. As you point out, there's a risk of detection in the planning area. There's a risk of detection in the place where you're going to try to get access to that material or weapon. And then there's a risk of detection all in between. And the more that you move things around, the higher the potential chance of detection. But then there's also the, the tension between The complexity of operation, the size of the group and type of technical expertise you need to carry out that operation, and the potential risk of insider defection, right? So, the the bigger group of people you have, the more chance you have for somebody telling the FBI or telling some law enforcement agency and leading to, to detection. Exactly.
2: And I think when you have something as technically complex as this, You want to bring all the best heads together, you want as many qualified people as you can, but there is that limit to you know to help avoid detection, to help avoid unintentional leaks. That you really can't have you know all the world's best scientists, even if
1: you wanted to. Um, so I think that's a really important point, yeah. And that's another dimension that we made sure to include in this is will a terrorist group even be able to? convince these technically minded people to work on a project like this. I mean, hopefully your average nuclear scientist is not willing to go and work for a group like this. Um, So we've included, what is the possibility for defection from these actual um, like government Research organizations that are working on nuclear weapons programs and things like that to go and work for a terrorist group because a high level of expertise is needed. It's it would be fairly difficult for a group to do this without anyone who has that kind of expertise. So it's not only yes, when people are in the group, they might tell someone, they might rat the group out for trying to conduct a nuclear attack. But it's can they even get these people involved in the first place?
2: Mm -hmm. And I think another. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no, Vivian. Go ahead.
2: I think another important thing to note is that we've been talking about how difficult it is for groups to get every one of these factors in place. But even if they are successful, there is a huge threat of retaliation from the target country, target organization, um, and likely their allies. And I think that's one of the biggest differences between being a good guy and being a bad guy is if you're unsuccessful, that's effectively your punishment, but you could do everything right, be successful and still have your organization wiped off the face of the earth. And Mm -hmm. I think that goes to the, the deterrability factor that we wanted to make sure got, um, what we felt was
0: sufficient weight in this, um, in this framework. Mm -hmm. Thanks for bringing that up. I was going to actually go back to something you said earlier about game theory, just in case the audience didn't pick up on it. So in game theory, um, you, you play a game with someone and how you play that game affects the next game. And then um, Vivian, you uh, said, well, it could be the, the, the first game is the last game um, mm-hmm. that is played by a terrorist group and um, the punitive or the retaliation effect of the type of attack is also really important from the the starting point. So if we go back to Al-Qaeda as an example, um, Al-Qaeda for a time got wiped out Mm -hmm. because of 9-11. They were all sent on the run uh, for many, many years um, and uh, decimated as an organization. Of course, Osama bin Laden paid paid the ultimate price. And so um, there may be some kind of, at the beginning of planning an operation, some sort of decision that's made, hey, let's not go nuclear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We'd like to survive and tell the tale. Uh, We want a more strategic campaign. Um, That's our vision for for our terrorist group, not a one-off, right? Because you can do something really big, but it could be a one-off. Right, and that's why we,
2: sort of circling back to our discussion of the conventional wisdom in this field, um, I think it's getting better now, but for a long time, there was the idea that terrorist organizations couldn't be deterred. They didn't have, you know, speaking in terms of um, the framework of nuclear deterrence between two nuclear armed states, terrorist organizations don't, quote unquote, have a return address. They don't have the same sort of uh, population, and a constituency that they're responsible for. Um, but there, we really wanted to incorporate the deterrent aspects of this decision-making because that is what it would be. As you said, terrorists know how bombs and guns work. It's been (laughs) pretty successful for them thus far. And there is a cost involved in attempting something new
1: like this. And and with that, we've included uh, a characteristic that we, so we assess not only the group's acceptance of mass destruction, are they willing to kill a large number of people, but do they have an acceptance of organizational self-destruction? Because the fact of the matter is that the significance of a nuclear attack, no matter, frankly, how small or how successful it actually might be, would be huge. If a terrorist group were able to successfully use a nuclear weapon, even on a very small scale, the consequences for the group would be enormous. I mean, there would be an all-out effort likely against the group to ensure that something like that never happened again. So... That's a, a very big factor that we consider in the framework uh, w- alongside other measures of deterability, like any territorial attachment, the group may have um, the effect of state support that a, a group might have state support might actually deter a group from using a nuclear weapon because eventually people would likely find out that the group was supported by the state. The state might have supported these efforts and then the state itself would also be targeted. Uh, we look at the effect uh, that uh, of the level of intelligence or counterterrorism focus that a group perceives to be focused on it, um, the effect that that might have in deterring the group. Because if I'm a terrorist and I know that there are a lot of eyes on me, I might be less likely to try and undertake a complex operation like this. So the deterability factor is a, a huge one within the cabinet framework.
0: So, Vivian, you said something about a return address, and um, I like that because it points out another inherent tension in all of this: is that in order to carry out a nuclear operation, whether you're you're building, which is obviously the territory or safe haven you would need for that, would be enormous, or you know the planning that you would need to buy or steal a nuclear weapon would even require some sort of safe haven or planning um, operation. Um, you actually do have a return address. So if you're engaging in a complex operation that requires significant planning, um, storage of materials, um, any, any, any of that, um, you do have a return d- address. Whereas if you're planning a much more simple operation, maybe you could do that in a cell-based terrace group from multiple locations. So um, there's, there's, a, there's definitely a tension there. Exactly. And,
2: and something we thought about a lot in the beginning stages of this project was really that the more we thought about it, the more groups that seemed capable of doing this were the ones that were least likely to actually carry it out. So you think about Hezbollah, that is arguably one of the most capable, both technologically, financially, um, has a huge uh, uh, willing population to draw from in certain cases, but In addition, they have a political constituency, they have an above board side of operations, they have a state sponsor that probably wouldn't be appreciative of being targeted itself. And so the group that is perhaps the most able to carry out this operation has all these reasons not to.
0: Mm -hmm. It's an interesting tension. So let's turn the discussion to the different pathways, um, because I think that's also, Uh, From a writer's perspective, a really important um, decision point to make if you're going to have a terrorist group that wants to have some sort of nuclear attack. um, What are the options and how how risky slash resource intensive slash complicated are those different options relative to each other? So let's start with the build option because that is, I think, the most complex
1: of all. Yes. So building is definitely the most complex of all, just considering the amount of technical expertise you need, the fact that you need to get materials that might not have already been machined to the levels that would be needed uh, for use in a nuclear weapon. So there are a lot of different factors at play. You need access to the right materials. You need access to the right tools. You need a place where you can actually machine these materials. Or if you don't need to machine them, you still need a place that you can construct the weapon. All of these things are going to cost money. So you're likely Mm -hmm. going to need a lot of money. You need to be able to transport sensitive materials and weapons without detection. You need to be able to store these materials. You obviously need to have the knowledge necessary to actually construct the weapon itself. And with that, you need the knowledge necessary to detonate the weapon. Now, obviously, if you're building the weapon, you're likely going to know how to detonate it. But we've included that because if you steal a weapon, for example, that might not be as intuitive. You know, there might be, there very likely would be um, kind of locks on the weapon to prevented from being detonated from a rogue group. So uh, there's that knowledge involved too, but building is absolutely the most complex of the three options that we've identified. Mm -hmm.
2: And there there are sort of inherent pros and cons to each of these and something we Found that was actually pretty interesting was in addition to the research and interviews that we conducted, we sent out a survey to numerous experts and one of the questions that um, that we included because we were wary of having a tie in the framework. So if you know, after filling out this build buy or steal phase, two of the options get the same score and you don't know which one to proceed with, we asked experts whether there is one of these three that they would sort of consider as a default all other things being equal and a lot of them answered that they would consider buy to be um to sort of fill that um that space as a default given that theoretically everything could be self-contained whereas if you were seeking to buy a complete weapon you might have to go outside of your group um to make contact with a seller if you're going to steal a weapon, obviously you would have to go outside of your group and conduct what would likely be a very complex um, terrorist operation to steal something, to steal a weapon from a nuclear weapon state. And that by building the weapon, although that would be the most technologically complex, theoretically it could all be contained within the group. So that was an interesting
0: finding that we came across. So (laughs) even though it's more complex, it's just a little bit less risky
2: hmm in, in its own way, yeah, in terms of
0: detection, yeah. And, of course, kind of behind the backdrop of all of this is the notion that um, fizzle material, which um, I'm going to refer to as highly enriched uranium weapons-grade or uh, weapons-grade plutonium, this is not stuff that exists in nature, right? So mm-hmm. the, the um, resources that have to go into producing this material uh, are enormous, um, mm-hmm. requiring massive facilities costing hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, over the course of history, we've watched countries fail to develop nuclear weapons, right? So um, even, you know, the, the build, even though it may be less risky because there's less interaction with the outside world, where are you going to get that material? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And
2: And the kind of plutonium that you would need... To, uh, to use in a plutonium-based weapon effectively does not exist in nature. It can only be created through very complex processes. And I think the natural occurrence of um, the, the isotope of uranium that you would need is, makes up I think 0.7% of, of all natural uranium. I would have to double check that very, very rarely occurring. And, and you're right. We, there are nation states that have, that have failed to create these programs, even with, um, all the investment they could provide and having it be overt in some cases and having the science, you know, every scientist you could want, um, yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a really key consideration that I think is often not considered enough.
0: So Let's say, um, our terrorist group has successfully either they've built, bought or stolen a weapon. What other challenges are there, right? So, so they, they've achieved success. They've acquired their, their objective, but they haven't delivered it yet to the target. So what comes next?
1: Yeah, so at that point, um, as we talked about earlier, the environmental permissibility begins to come into play a lot. So you've successfully acquired your weapon, but are you going to be able to move it to your target environment? Are you going to be able to have it in the target environment for the time that you need without detection to actually be able to detonate it? Um, From that, uh, once you've acquired the weapon, you also need to have people who are willing to go and embark on this process of using it, Um, you need hopefully to not have a very high level of uh, intelligence focus on the group. Because again, the more eyes that you have on you, the more difficult it will be that you'll be able to convertly move this weapon. Um, and you, at that point, once you have the weapon, it really does mostly come down to the permissibility and the people involved. I mean, you might still have financing concerns that are related to moving the weapon and things like that. Um, but most of the complexity is in getting the weapon is what we assessed. Um, after that, if you can get the weapon, obviously it will not be simple most of the time to get it into the target environment and to covertly be able to to use it and everything. But um, at that point, there are certainly fewer considerations than there are before. Mm-hmm.
2: And this is this is assuming that this group has effectively made it to almost the end of their operation. So they've already considered whether carrying out this operation will play into their strategic objectives. I think that is something that even if a group decided to explore the possibility of carrying out such an attack, they might realize that, you know, our followers really might not be so keen on on this level of destruction or this level of um, escalation, effectively, because I think even even a dud nuclear weapon that sort of fizzles out, I think would have a large impact on, on terrorism
1: and counterterrorism at large. Just the psychological impact would be so large. Um, And what Vivian was talking about there is again, a lot of what's encapsulated in our measure of perseverance section of the framework. So even if the group has successfully acquired the weapon, do they still have the strength of ideology to carry with this? Do they believe that there is an existential threat to the group, that there is some huge demonized other that must be eradicated? Um, Do they believe that using this weapon would trigger some sort of apocalyptic or a millenarian reward? If those things don't still exist, if that ideology isn't for some reason as strong as it was at the beginning, then the consequences of using the weapon might be too large for the group to actually want to use it, even if it it. hasn't. So those are considerations that need to be held in high regard throughout this entire process.
0: Yeah, I just thought of an interesting example that's not nuclear, but the Minnesota Patriots, which was a far right kind of anti-government group um, in Minnesota Mm -hmm. um, back in, I think it was the 80s. um, They uh, wanted to carry out some plot against the local enforcement authorities, and they um, got castor beans um, and used uh-huh. an online recipe to create ricin from castor beans. And if you watch Brick and Bat, you know all about ricin. <laughs> and um, they put it in a coffee can or something, and I guess it was just sitting around and they never used it and mm-hmm. they were caught <laughs> with <the> ricin
1: <laughs> and
0: prosecuted. And um, actually I think they were prosecuted for, for other things. I can't remember if the law was on the books yet or not um, against being, developing ricin. Um, but, but that's such an important point. And I think there's a tendency um, as people on the street or writers or whatever to forget, forget that terrorists are humans. Mm-hmm. They may, they may and, and, and they're usually very idealistic. Um, they they want to they achieve something big um, and sometimes they have, you know, actual objectives um, and, you know, the, the, the operation to get access to a nuclear weapon probably takes a long, long time, right? And so the, the makeup of the group could have changed, um, the uh, psychology or the philosophy of the leader might have changed. So you're right. It's, it's a really important factor that kind of gets lost in the literature that the assumption is, I have nuclear weapon, I must use it. I am a robot, you know, it's, it's just, um, you know, inevitable. And it's not inevitable because people are people. And um, exactly. so this is extremely fascinating. I heard that you said that it is turning from a spreadsheet into an app. Will yes. this someday become available online? Yes, so we are working
2: with uh, some web developers to turn it into an online dashboard and users will be able to um, to log into the site and be able to save uh, any runs they do of the framework. So if you just want to keep tabs on the group you're studying, you fill this out every six months and you can kind of see how your assessments have changed, whether um, that be because the data you're working off of you know maybe something about the terrorist group has changed or perhaps just your assessment of that group has changed and you can track the scores you give to each of these sub characteristics um or you can do runs of the framework for different groups and see how they might compare so we're really looking forward to that because it'll make it much more accessible much more um i think useful
1: to to users so we're
2: very much looking forward to the launch of that dashboard.
1: Yeah, having it there will really help us to accomplish one of our goals of getting this to a really kind of wide, diverse audience. So when we created this framework, we specifically created it with the intention that it could be used by a large number of different individuals with different levels of access to information. So we hope that once this dashboard is up, government analysts who might be working off of classified information will be able to go and use it Authors like yourself will be able to go and use it with the same ease with the same access and analysts at independent organizations like Vivian and myself Would also have that same access So this will be a really really fantastic opportunity for us to really make sure that this is something that's useful and available to people
0: So what is the timeline?
2: Um, To be determined Uh, some things that need to be worked out um, with uh, our organizations and um, uh, the grantee that was involved in the
1: in the project overall
2: but hoping by the end of the summer it should be
1: up and running oh wow when it is we will absolutely be posting it all over your twitters. (laughs) yeah (laughs) so
0: excellent Um, is there a way to get a copy of the the study itself or is that not yet online either
2: yeah so our plan is to once the um, online dashboard is up and running to release a revised version of the study um, and have that launched alongside the the online dashboard so that it's viewable yeah. to readers and um, and they know how to use the dashboard itself <laughs> yes yeah, so
1: I would say ultimately I don't think it's very advisable, frankly, to go through and use this framework without also reading the study along with mm-hmm. it, because along with detailing some of our foundational assumptions and methodological decisions, the study itself also kind of functions as a code book for the framework. So yes, within the framework itself, we have these For each characteristic, we have scales that kind of detail the, the levels of propensity that a leader might have or the levels of territorial attachment and things like that. But you still might not really know what that means at first glance. Some of it, just given the complexity of all of this, is not the most intuitive. So to be able to look at the study and read kind of why we've made these decisions based on the literature and all sorts of things like that is very important, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who goes through and uses this framework, I highly recommend using the codebook and using the study to your advantage because I really think that it will help users to create a much more accurate and realistic assessment yep
0: okay so end of the summer and hopefully you know by this time the po- this podcast comes out actually might already be available let's cross our fingers um if they want to know about when it's going to be available um who should they follow on twitter um
2: definitely follow me that's <laughs> at Vivian Haggerty. And, and Madeline. If, you can
1: also follow me personally. I think I'm more important to follow, but that's just me. And you can find me at M as in Madeline, N as in Nicole, uh, Dement, D E M E N T. And you can also follow
2: Valens Global, um, which I believe has an underscore somewhere in the name.
1: But if you just search Valens Global, it'll, be it'll there. It'll come up. We'll be there. <laughs> so we will
0: publicize it on all of those different channels. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been fascinating. I think it will be incredibly helpful for authors who are thinking about writing stories about nuclear terrorism. And of course, incredibly useful for scholars and academics and government analysts who want to understand better the likelihood of nuclear terrorism. So thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajama. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.